Hello, and welcome to When in Doubt Pixie. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sophie. On this podcast, we start every episode with a question that we're interested in and a couple of answers to choose from. We discuss all of our options, and then at the end, we tell you our verdict for what we think best answers the question. Then, after the episode, you can go and answer our poll on Twitter at Pixie Podcast and tell us what you think. Uh, please note that this podcast does feature light swearing and a total lack of objectivity. All of our opinions are just that, opinions, and, you know, we don't pretend to have all of the answers. We're just interested in discussing the question. Pretty much. Yeah, we're just here trying to be as informed as possible in a world of fallible information. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Such that it is. Yeah. We live on Earth, not in heaven. Okay. <laughs> I've never heard a truer statement. We live on Earth, not in heaven. <laughs> we live on... <laughs> We live on Earth, not in heaven, and if, we, if we're not careful, we live in hell. <laughs> All right, so since this is our first episode, we, of course, want to introduce ourselves. Lindsay, how do we know each other? Uh, you and I were college roommates, and now that we're both done with college, we are still friends. Yeah, pretty much, and now we're taking it to the next level by starting a podcast. Mm -hmm. Cool. <laughs> um, well, I, Sophie... I have a degree in economics, and I also have a degree in environmental sustainability. Uh, that are Those are the degrees that I got in the hopes of maybe getting a job someday. Right now, I'm working a job that has nothing to do with that. I make maps for a living. Um, and my real passion is fashion history, so go figure. Lindsay, what about you? I also have two degrees. I have degrees in English and linguistics, which I got because I thought they were interesting and had no hopes of finding a job in the future. So far, that has come true, <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy, and so I'm actually planning to go back to grad school to get more degrees in those fields. <laughs> okay, so Sophie, what kind of topics can our listeners expect from us in this podcast? Well, uh, between the two of us, we are super interested in things like pop culture and literature. Mm -hmm. uh, we are also super interested in history. Mm -hmm. And of course, as uh, two women, we are very, very interested in feminism and all of the ways that it applies to the world that we live in. Yeah, totally agree. And so, I think we're also interested in mental health and over analysis. So make of that what you will. Yes. Yes, especially over analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, I just think that that is the key of this whole podcast is over analysis. So, you know, strap in. Yes, exactly. Time to examine every single minute choice that you make in your daily life and have a 40 minute to an hour conversation about what the right choice really is. Mm -hmm. If you have never heard two <laughs> friends discuss whether they should eat Mexican or Italian for an hour and then just stay in for dinner, you're about to like get that feeling right now. Welcome. Welcome to the Lindsay and Sophie experience. Welcome. So, Lindsay, what's this week's question? This week's question is, which millennial YA heroine is our favorite? Our choices are Hermione Granger from Harry Potter, Bella Swan from Twilight, and Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games. So we picked these three because they are, me and Sophie, of course, you and I are millennials, and these are kind of the three female characters we grew up with when we were kind of getting into books in a big way, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say so. And it's really important to have all three of these characters in tandem because they were all three very, very present and powerful during the sort of late 2000s. 
which is the time when we were growing up in our youth. Um, and, you know, the presence, more female characters is always good. And the presence of these particular three, who were the heroines of not only three very successful book franchises, but also three very successful movie franchises, um, they were carrying on a very important conversation with each other uh, that I think shaped a lot of our worldviews and those of other people in our generation. Absolutely. So in that spirit, we'd like to compare these women to each other, not pit them against each other. Yes, exactly. Shall we get started? So uh, where do you want to start with? The OG Hermione Granger? Absolutely. I think we should do this chronologically. Okay. Um, so give us a little bit about a, a little bit of background on uh, Hermione Granger and um, your relationship with her. Uh, let's see. Hermione Granger, for those of you who don't know, is from J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series, uh, the first of which began its writing in 1991, I believe. So this is this is more in the thick of millennials, I'd say, you know, for the older millennials mm -hmm. out there, and which is why she is our yes. first first up for discussion. As far as her canon treatment, Hermione Granger is a muggle born in a world of witches and wizards, which is J.K. Rowling's analog for, you know, race relations. So, you know, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. But as far as canon, she's someone who is a know-it-all, very smart, solves her problems through knowledge and has... Um, intellect. Intellect. And uh, has a really uncompromising moral instinct, I'd say. I would say, so my relationship with Hermione Granger is, um, well, I guess to talk about the Harry Potter franchise, I saw it as a little girl. I was about four, five or six years old, I want to say, the, when the movies came out, in, when the first movie came out in 2001. Um, and from there, like, I was instantly, like, in love. <laughs> um, not in a gay way, because that came later. Right. But <laughs> You're saying she wasn't your gay was, sexual awakening. No. That came later, <laughs> when Emma Watson got hot. There you go. But it was Hermione Granger. <laughs> yes, but like I super identified with Hermione Granger. You know, she's this. You know, she's this girl. She who is unapologetically a nerd. She solves problems through her intellect. You know, um, and to be fair, I didn't have a whole lot of female role models up to that point. Not, not because. Uh, there, there weren't any just because I just, my parents didn't like to, they didn't like me watching a lot of TV. So I just didn't have a whole lot of media that I was engaging with. So I latched onto Hermione Granger, especially because she was smart and everybody around me was telling me the six year old child that I was smart. So I was like, oh, I can be like Hermione. And she's clearly a good character. You know, she's Harry's friend and you know, she's this awesome person and she's played by Emma motherfucking Watson. So I mean, <laughs> It's goals. Yeah, so literally, so she she is goals. Oh, yeah. Well, you know the thing about Hermione Granger that I kind of latched onto that was almost to my detriment mm -hmm. was, um, I don't know if it's a character arc per se, mm -hmm. but basically Hermione's really bossy. Yeah. And it comes up in the books much more than the movies. And That's true. as you said, you were a Harry Potter movie kid mm -hmm. first. First. But I... I was raised on the books, mm -hmm. you know, got them read out loud to me and yeah. everything. So I really identified to Hermione as a bossy child. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it, um, it validated me acting in a way that I probably shouldn't have been acting. So yeah, same. watch out, Hermione. Same. <laughs> 
I, it definitely, yeah, it, 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 it wasn't until later when I was older and wiser that I was like, huh, you know, this behavior may not be for the best. Um, yeah, like, you know, you know, I don't know if you had that stage or phase when you were younger and you thought it was really cool to, like, cor- obsessively correct people's grammar. <sighs> exactly. I really, I really feel like that time of my life, I was really yeah. identifying with Hermione Granger. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, as I grew up out mm-hmm. of that and realized how, you know, racist and how many intersectional problems there are in that kind of behavior, I yeah. was like, hmm, Hermione Granger. Yeah. Because as we know, Hermione Granger's not the best. She's such a passionate social justice warrior, another thing I identified with. But again, looking at it mm-hmm. from where we are now. Yeah. How many house elves were involved in her house elf rights crusade, huh? Yeah, very, very few. Mm-hmm. Short-sighted. So another thing that I uh, thought of about Hermione, I think it's important to note that like one of Hermione's standout points, in addition to being really smart and really bossy and really bookish, is the fact that like she's self-taught a lot, which True. I think had a really big impact on uh, on me and on a lot of other people, where it was like this idea that we had never really had never really been properly presented to us in the media that was available at the time is this idea that you can that you can learn and you can become really good at things just by reading books you know Mm -hmm. and 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 so in that way I would say you know I think like even though the Harry Potter books were good in their own right and they definitely turned me on to reading in their own right but also I think a big part of what turned me into a bookworm and I think this is true for a lot of other people our age is the fact that like Hermione was a bookworm, right? She was super bookish, mm-hmm. but she was also really good. Like being bookish made her good at what she did and like made her really stand out. And like a lot of people were complimenting her. And so, you know, us kids were like, I want that kind of validation, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's that when we were younger, we admired Hermione so much that we thought, I want to be like her because it will gain the admiration. But of course, in universe... She doesn't have a lot of admiration. That's true. It's she. She's really true to herself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She's had people telling her, you know, shut up and no one's interested and you're really dull. Or you're really bossy. Mm-hmm. And it's not like she's invulnerable to it, yeah. but she is who she is. She's really true to herself, which, again, is something mm-hmm. you don't It's something that grows with the reading, mm-hmm. I think, as you get older. Yeah. And yet at the same time, I think I would argue Harry's narration is a lot more sympathetic even at like the low point of their friendship, which is like in Prisoner of Azkaban, right? Then it's like, I feel like Harry's narration, like, I mean, it does put, he does talk a little bit about how he's frustrated with her or whatever, but mostly it just kind of says, Harry and Ron didn't talk to her. And then like, you're like, the the narrative kind of validates Hermione a little bit more than Harry himself does or that the world does. And so like, you know, because in that section, like, you know, I feel like you really feel for her. You're just like, man, these guys are being jerks. They're terrible. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. As you touched on earlier, I do want to discuss a bit of Fanon, uh-huh. which I think for as far as our three multiple choices go, mm-hmm. the Harry Potter Fanon is the most worthy of discussion. Okay, go on. I think I know where you want to go with it. So why don't you take it away as a non-white? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was like, is is this what she's talking about or like what is she talking about? Okay. It is. And I just feel like do I really have to be the one to cock ass explain it? 
Well, no. I mean, I'm also not black, so... That's true. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a really uh, powerful piece of fanon, which is the idea that, you know, none of the main characters are really, like, they're ever completely described, um, aside from maybe Ron. But so Hermione, a lot of fans latched onto the detail of Hermione having this bushy hair that, you know, like, that's really, you know, it's, re- it's really messy and... Um, a lot of other descriptors that I can't remember off the top of my head, but to, to say that, you know, it, it's possible Hermione could be black. And in particular, this particular piece of fandom was given a little bit of extra validation, both by J.K. Rowling herself, who said, I love the idea of black Hermione, even though I like that's not how I originally wrote her. But also by uh, the uh, play that shall not be named, which cast a black woman as <laughs> adult Hermione. Um, so in that way, like if you squint at it, even though I'm very reluctant to acknowledge that the cursed child as canon, um, right. But at the same time, it is like an author approved work that casts Hermione as a black woman, which I think is Mm -hmm. really important. And it is something more than a lot of these others, uh, either Bella Swan or Katniss Everdeen, you know, like a lot of those, uh, any of the race bending or stuff like that remains pretty firmly entrenched in, in fanon as opposed to getting it all close to canon. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite moment of Hermione? Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> uh, definitely somewhere close to the top of the list. And this is mostly just because as a child, I was very, you know, like most other kids who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, Princess Diaries was out, like makeover movies <laughs> or like the transformation of the girl. Like that was really big and so I like loved the bit where she goes to the ball with crumb like um, yes like I remember sitting next to my dad reading like he was reading this this bit to me and um I remember like he he wouldn't let me see the page because normally he would let me read next to him like I would read along with him but he wouldn't let me Mm -hmm. see the page and then he said it was Hermione and I was like (gasps) what (laughs) you know (laughs) Your dad knew the key of a dramatic reveal. Yes. So that was a high point. You know, it's like, I think cinematically, my favorite Hermione moment is um, the Draco Malfoy punch, obviously. Oh, of course. That's iconic. <laughs> iconic. Mm-hmm. But as far as like book Hermione, she was so shady. Like, well, in Philosopher's Stone, when they get to Snape's puzzle, mm-hmm. you know, Harry's like, okay, what even is this? Like, what, what's this a test of magic? And she's like, it's not a test of magic. It's a test of something that wizards haven't got any of common sense (laughs) or something. (laughs) I was like, girl, yes. Yes. It's wonderful. I mean, I do miss a lot of that. Like I wish she'd done more critique, more act. I mean, she does a lot of active critiquing of the wizarding world, which I feel like Harry misses because he's like, oh my God, this is like not quite as abusive as my abusive domestic situation, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, um, Okay, I was going to say I have a favorite line, which is from Order of the Phoenix, the, the conversation when they decide that they're going to start the Order of the Phoenix. And Ron says something. He's like... Or Dumbledore's army. Sorry. Yeah, Dumbledore's army. Ron says something bullheaded and Hermione goes, just because you have the emotional range of a teaspoon. And... Oh, I know exactly. I know exactly because I was thinking that too. It's uh-huh. actually... Harry comes back from a like staying late at a meeting with Cho. That's right. And no, you're they're right, like, yeah. did you kiss her? And he's like, yeah. How was it? Wet? And they were like, what? <laughs> and he's like, because she was crying, because she was crying. And then they're trying to discuss it. And Ron's like, well, what's she crying for? It's just that her boyfriend was murdered last year. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then Hermione's just, yeah. So that was, that, that was one of my favorite Hermione lines ever. Yeah. It's good. Okay. So who's next? Is it Bella Swan or Katniss Everdeen? It's Bella Swan. 
Okay. Chronologically. So I'm going to let you take the lead on this because you are much more familiar with this franchise than I am. Yeah. I mean, why don't you tell tell the listener, Sophie, how familiar are you with this franchise? <laughs> okay. So with the Twilight franchise, I have read exactly one book. I've read the first book um, mm-hmm. and I read it in a day because we were staying at a family friend's house in a different city. I've read I've read only the first Twilight book, but uh, I have seen all of the movies except for Breaking Dawn. One or two or both. Both of Breaking Dawn. I haven't seen either of them. I mean, I'm obviously familiar with what goes on with the plot. I mean, I feel like it's impossible that anybody who was reasonably tapped into pop culture during those years was not aware of exactly everything that was going down in the Twilight uh, franchise. Um, And also, I have had the distinct honor of being an audience member of the of the first book uh, being acted out by Lindsay and another one of our friends. So that was definitely an experience. Okay, Lindsay, why don't you tell the audience your level of familiarity with this franchise? So basically, I mean, I believe it was when the first one was coming out, Mm -hmm. uh, the first movie in 2008 was when all the hype kind of happened, right? So around that time, between 2006 and 2008, when the book came out and the movie came out, um, it happened. I was into it. I read, I read all four books and the gender-bent one, of course, mm-hmm. and also the 12-chapter work in progress that Stephanie Meyer has declared abandoned, oh, where she's writing from Edward's point of view. <laughs> and the short story set during the third one from the point of view of a minor character. Is that the second, and I, the second life, the short second life of Brie Tanner? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. indeed. Gotcha. So, to me, Bella Swan, you know, you know a lot of what you need to know about her from the first book. So, don't worry. I think you're qualified. Thank you. Um, just to lead into it, the whole feminism issue, Twilight is inherently anti-feminist. So they say. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know about those arguments, Sophie. What do you think Yes, is the um, gist of that? I mean, there, there's... I mean, first of all, you could start with kind of the source material or, or like the author... Uh, so Stephanie Meyer, uh, who came from kind of a Mormon background, and I think a lot of that kind of comes through in her writing, um, you know, like, and it's just like the Mormon background or, or like just like this, this anti-feminist background really comes out in a couple of, in a couple of moments. So like, for example, in, in the kind of the whole idea that goes throughout the, the later books, which is the idea like Edward won't sleep with Bella unless they're married. So like she, you know, Bella is over here just trying to get some and like her boyfriend won't give it to her. And so like there's like a lot of like a lot of the the plot of the later books I know like kind of is centered around that. And eventually they end up getting married and there's shenanigans that ensue from them getting married and, and like especially notably Bella getting pregnant. And even though this baby is very dangerous to her because like they don't exactly know what's happening and like. And she decides, you know, and it's like, and she never questions whether or not that she's going to keep it. So, like, those are a couple of kind of troubling messages to send to the book's target audience, which was at the time kind of young girls, about preteen and teenage. Hmm. Interesting, because that's really, in, in my experience of that discourse, the main issues were even from the first book, apparent, not even getting into the marriage thing. You know, Bella mm-hmm. Swan has very low self confidence, and her narration doesn't keep it a secret. And she's obsessed with the literally perfect Edward Cullen because in this universe, vampires are perfected, perfect creatures. You know, not hyperbolically perfect, but actually impossibly perfect. So there's a constant, you know, 
issue of Bella not feeling worthy of her immaculately hot boyfriend Mm -hmm. and, you know, be just dumping on herself the whole time. And then, of course, um, the control issues uh, were a big part of the discourse during that time, which, you know, Edward Cullen watches Bella Swan sleep and she's like, uh, okay with it, basically. Mm hmm. Or more importantly, he didn't ask her. And once it comes up, she's not super okay with it, but, you know, nothing changes. Then the whole love triangle is characterized by both men trying to control her actions instead of, you know, trusting her to make her own decision. They try to Mm -hmm. prevent her from having access to different options, essentially. Right. Yeah. And so what are some things that you like about Bella Swan? What I like about Bella Swan and more... I guess in a more meta context, what I like about Twilight is that it is a very feminine fantasy that doesn't Mm -hmm. require women to be strong. You know, it's not saying the only thing you're allowed to fantasize about is being a badass female who don't need no nothing. You know, Mm -hmm. it allows it allows females the fantasy of ugh. I just said females and I feel disgusting. It allows women and girls the fantasy of being taken care of by an impossibly strong, impossibly hot, impossibly in love with you partner, you know? Yeah. And I'm into that. Yeah. I think um, a thing that's also uh, important that maybe separates for ex- Bella, for example, from like Hermione Granger is that Bella has female friends. You know, she's like, mm-hmm. whereas with Hermione, then like we sort of, I mean, she does. She is shown to talk to other girls, but she's never like Harry and Ron are always her primary friends. That was just a thing mm-hmm. that I thought was interesting because that was a part that I really enjoyed about about the first Twilight book when I read it was, you know, you have all of these women characters, and you know, so it's it's it you know it seems like it's a very that's definitely an environment that felt very true to life to me. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was, so Hermione Granger is like a sexless nerd. You know, is that stereotype? That was the whole point of like book four when Ron says, wait, you're a girl. And she says, well, spotted. Right. Yeah. She's she's a sexless being to her male friends, essentially. Mm -hmm. Whereas Bella Swan, while presented as like a tomboy, you know, where she doesn't wear high heels and she's clumsy and she doesn't wear makeup and, you know, she's not into shopping and she likes books. So it's still like that. But still, there are feminine aspects to her character. Again, death of the author. Who's to say what Stephanie Meyer was going for? But I think what women and girls can find in Bella is, mm-hmm. you know, an, a step up on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you had that phase growing up where it was bad to be feminine, yes. bad to be interested in girly things, right? So Hermione is mm-hmm. like where you start with that. Though it is stereotypical, mm-hmm. again, it's just, it's is it good that, you know, Bella goes to live with her dad and immediately takes up all the cooking, you know, it's like, and cleaning, Mm-hmm. So it's not good in that sense, but at the same time, it is relatable. It's a relatable truth to a lot of girls yeah. who, you know, if their mothers weren't good at housekeeping or if they if their mothers were busy, a lot of housekeeping does fall to older girl like older daughters. Yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> I'm an older sibling. <laughs> you would know more about it. For the for the audience, I am an older sibling. I am a salty older sibling. And a whole woman as well. Yes. So that's always what I've liked mm-hmm. about Twilight. Even yes. though it's not a good influence for people, not necessarily a good influence for people who aren't in a critical thinking place mm-hmm. or good at divorcing self-image from fiction, say. Yeah. The escape that Twilight offers is comforting in yeah. a way that it's 
like that's the whole point of Bella being a Mary Sue, right? Like she's very blank because she's easily, easily identifiable for the reader. And then she gets to have this like amazing romance and it's all just totally impossibly romantic and unbelievable and fantastical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the whole point of it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And let's let me get in step my toe into this discourse. Okay. Real talk. The reason that people hated Twilight was not like to the level that they did was not because it was Twilight. It's because girls liked it. Oh and yes. Housewives liked it. Yes. And that's why. Yes, one hundred. It was you know, it was misogyny, like straight up. Yeah, I definitely remember being part of that camp back in my less enlightened days where I was like, Man, you know, like why would anybody like Twilight? Blah blah blah. Um because you know, it's like, I'm into, I'm in, I'm not like other girls and I'm into more deep things anyway. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We don't need to, vi- we don't need to revisit past me for too long. Um, did you have more things to say about Bella or did you want to move on? I, I was going to try to give an overview of her character and I'm like, well, allegedly she's into reading, but she doesn't do much of that in the text. She's into Wuthering Heights, which is very telling. Isn't it? <laughs> and um, she's into her vampire boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And then once he leaves, she's she's not into therapy, which, you know, no, not great. She doesn't have much of an identity outside of being romanced no. by vampires, essentially. Yeah, she she's got a couple, you know, like, I mean, she does demonstrate like in a, like a couple times. She does, you know, make nominal efforts to demonstrate her personal autonomy, which I thought was really cool. Like, I know that she refuses to let Edward mm-hmm. spend too much money on her. You know, she drives this, like, clunky old truck, which I thought was, you know, like, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like she chooses to move in with her dad, you know, so that to kind of give her mom space. Oh, she does. Which, you know, which is which is a really interesting because, you know, like in a lot of I feel like in a lot of other franchises that were kind of contemporary or even older than, you know, a lot of times it's the heroine. She's getting shipped around, you know, with very little autonomy. People are sending her from places, you know, and it's just Mm -hmm. like this is Bella. She made the choice to come to Forks. And that's not something that you can say for every single uh, female-centric series or franchise mm-hmm. is, is you know, like a lot of times the decision that starts the series is kind of yanked away from them where it's not something that they get to make. But in this case, that was a decision that Bella got to make. And I think that that's really mm-hmm. cool. I believe we call it the inciting incident. Yes. That. In whatever. <laughs> in a literary analysis. Yeah. After Bella becomes a vampire, you yes. know, in... In Stephanie Meyerland, vampires can often have superpowers. Yes. Which, you know, it's cool. Whatever. Mm-hmm. So, Bella's superpower is revealed to be a shield, which, again, she's really... You can go too much in one direction or the other, but mm-hmm. it is a very feminine thing to have a shield instead of an offensive, you know, ability. And it is this defensive maternal ability that totally wins the day, you know? And yeah allows her and her family to come out unscathed and escape eternal, you know, damnation or whatever happens when vampires die. (laughs) You know, in the end, it was this female protagonist doing female things, standing by her female decisions with her female power, beating out a a coven of vampires led by three patriarchs, you know? Yeah. I think there were a lot of things about Twilight that were quietly or not so quietly radical, you know, and it's especially I think it does definitely have a role to play in terms of just the the the, the conversations that were going on at this point in time, because this was a point in time where it was like we were having more, you know, more explicitly female centered, like uh, especially fantasy and science fiction, as is mm-hmm. kind of exemplified by these three like huge Titanic series. But um also, at this time, this was like 
kind of before feminism was like a thing that everybody was into. You know, this was a time when it was still kind of looking around on the on the outer corners of the Internet. People were like, oh, you know, I'm not a feminist. I would say I'm more of an equalist. I just want, you know, so there was. Oh, that old thing. (laughs) Yeah, it was a dark time. But like, I feel like, you know, so I feel like definitely these role models that we grew up with, like definitely played a big part later in kind of the discourses that we you know, millennials started having among ourselves on like, what is feminism? And like, how, like, what, what should women be entitled to? Or what should women be like? uh, Or, you know, how should they be treated in literature and media and movies, and etc, etc. Agreed. It kind of it does mark a pretty big turning point in internet discourse. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, Do you feel like we've finished with Bella? Or was there more that you wanted to add? No, I think we're good. Okay. Katniss Everdeen. (laughs) This girl. This girl. Well, uh, spoiler alert, Katniss Everdeen, I don't know whether she likes therapy, but she gets it. Good for her. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, so she she stands strong as the only one of our protagonists who canonically gets therapy for her traumas. Yes. Good job. Well, good. Well, not, not necessarily good job, Katniss. I feel like a lot of it isn't up to her, but good job, the institutions that eventually step in and get her some goddamn therapy yeah exactly (laughs) okay why don't you take this one since i dominated bella swan yeah okay well uh katniss everdeen is the heroine of the series the hunger games you know written by suzanne collins and this series i want to say uh came out in the late 2000s yeah it came okay so it came out in 2008 okay so that's yeah so i I must have read it pretty soon after it came out it was recommended to me by a friend of mine a school friend so it was sort of towards the tail end after after twilight way after harry potter um and it's interesting to kind of think about that like especially if you look at them in terms of in terms of chronology and time it's 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 very interesting to kind of look at how that went because we were going from we were going from kind of this this more these more this more fantastical Harry Potter world and then kind of into Twilight, which is still has a lot of elements of the fantastical, but it's also kind of more anchored in the real world. You know, there's there it's it's more mature there. It's more adult. And then you kind of get into uh, the Hunger Games, which came out right around the time, I would say, uh, when, you know, right before the financial crisis happened. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so like and so I think that's probably one of the big reasons why it really resonated with a lot of people, especially maybe uh, readers who are a little older than us, you know, readers who are in high school or, you know, like millennials who are starting to come into their own, like it really re- resonated because you have been going through the 90s and the early 2000s with this sense of like promise and like, oh my God, the world is so cool and there's so many things happening. It's great. Yeah. And then the financial crisis happened and then you're like, man, this sucks. And yeah, the rug was really pulled out <laughs> from under people's feet mm-hmm. in 2008, yeah. right? When you racked up a bunch of student loans because you're supposed to and it's the right thing to do and yeah. you're going to be able to pay it off by working and then you can't work yeah so to draw a very direct parallel it is you know the people in the districts are keeping their heads down and not rebelling and doing what they're supposed to do and you know even still the the reaping comes for everybody you know a lot of a lot of these earlier fiction books and their contemporaries uh they're a lot of times we're operating under the assumption that it's like again the that the system works the institutions um of our society work you know that they're they have our best interests at heart or whatever. 
and again, and then you kind of get into this, 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 the Hunger Games where it sort of starts to peel back. And I think that did that for a lot of people our age as well, where we mm-hmm. as 11, 12, 13 year olds were like, oh, you know, the system works. And this was the time when like a lot of us were starting to get into the civics portion of our education, you know, and then mm-hmm. you get to things like the Hunger Games starts to peel back the veil a little bit. And you're like, oh, shit, like these institutions do not work like, you know, like you can't just do what you're supposed to do. Like there, there, there are things that are fundamentally wrong about elements of our society, especially in the States. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, to compare the institutions and the way they're treated in the three series mm-hmm. and even our protagonist's relationship to them, say, yeah. it's like Hermione Granger is obviously, you know, into social justice, but she very much wants to appeal the current system, appeal to the current system and revise the current system and work within the current system, right? Yes. Protests and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, Bella Swan, as as far as any sort of institution exists, it's the Volturi, who are this ancient coven of patriarchs who oversee the vampire world and keep the secrecy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they are shown, event, you know, they're sort of presented like, well, we need them. And then as time goes on, it's obvious that they kind of engineer things to poach very strong vampires to their own coven, against their will, mm-hmm. often. And after Bella and the Coens defeat them, you know, they don't usurp them with their better ideals, they just leave them to continue on operating. So, yeah. you know, yeah. it's kind of like, Hermione wants to work within the system, Bella Swan is just, you know, divorced from the system, but leaves the system intact. Mm-hmm. And then Katniss Everdeen, against her will as well, <laughs> is like, well, I guess we're taking the system down. Yeah. Let's talk about her as a person, like, so so kind of her characteristics. She's this kind of prickly, uh, individualistic, kind of introverted person. You know, she doesn't, she's mm-hmm. not really a people person. I think, you know, I think she's an interesting protagonist in that she's a totally reluctant hero. Obviously, she volunteers to participate in the Hunger Games after her sister is chosen for them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of, a lot of the greater plot threads you know, especially I'm thinking Catching Fire into the beginning of Mockingjay. Yeah. She is being manipulated by her mentor figures into becoming the face of this rebellion that she's not interested in. Yeah, that's very true. It's funny because, you know, outwardly Katniss was like, again, the prototype for this kind of this, this, this different kind of YA heroine, you know, because we had, we had bookish magical girls, Hermione Granger. We had like, you know, the protagonist, like you're sort of, I mean, in one way, a Mary Sue, but you also had like, you know, the normal girl stumbles into abnormal situation with Bella Swan. And then Katniss it was this new brand of protagonist who, you know, she's very physically fit. She's, you know, she's kind of badass. Like she knows how to shoot an arrow. She's very talented at what she does. You know, she's physically very capable. What do you think of Katniss, you know, as far as like feminism and, you know, how she was as a female character for girls to interact with? Okay. Well, uh, so again, uh, like she's obviously, she's, she's very physically capable you know, she has a lot of these skills that are really badass that we hadn't seen in a lot of our primary role models before. Um, you know, she does what needs to be done. You know, I think she's like one of the first like protagonists of the time where where like she like sh- like where she she has to grapple with killing somebody, right? Um, mm-hmm. Both in terms of like she's one of the first people that like actually outright does it because we were in the sort of Batman I won't take lives situation for a long time. Which is Very not true. a bad situation to be in. I mean, you know, because especially talking about like a lot of our readers are children here. Um, yeah. You know, she's put into a lot of really difficult situations and she and she does very well for herself. I think I think the interesting thing about Katniss and like, say, femininity, mm-hmm. 
that that word is like the bane of my existence. Yeah. The interesting thing about Katniss and femininity <laughs> is that Katniss is really, again, like the sort of action woman, brand fem- strong woman brand feminism, yes. where she's like, she doesn't really have emotions. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. She's very rational. She says, I have to put my emotions aside in order to be strong woman mm-hmm. and, you know, solve my problems. Yeah. Just a very, a very hard picture of a woman, which isn't bad. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very interesting. And... The other thing being that it's 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 interesting because like Fanon would have you believe that Katniss Everdeen is not she's not a feminine woman she's not really friends with a lot of women you know but I but like it, you know and I think a lot of that is like it it reflects not necessarily the story of the Hunger Games itself but a lot of the books that come out that, that came out afterwards I just kind of wanted to bring that up to say like it's like it's interesting that Katniss has kind of that reputation it's true that she is surrounded by a lot of men and a lot of powerful men but it's also she does explicitly have like these really these really interesting relationships with people like her mother with her sister with Madge and then also with Mm -hmm. Effie you know which is that's also a really interesting and complicated relationship that you know she doesn't really meditate on a whole lot but like if you just kind of take it at like what's in the text then it's like whoa that's there's a lot going on there very true Mm -hmm. and I also think it's interesting Mm -hmm. if we compare all three protagonists and their say motivations Mm -hmm. Hermione Granger stands out she is someone who fights for uh, the right thing to do, yeah, right? Yeah. She has this moral compass. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bella Swan, definitely, she's that she's that Mary Sue character who's like very selfless and everything she does is to the benefit of others, even as, if it's to her detriment. Yes. She's always living for other people, but I find Katniss falls down on the Bella Swan side as opposed to the Hermione Granger side. Yeah. Where Katniss's motivations are always to protect her sister. Yes. So that is a very feminine, nurturing... Mm-hmm. motivation yeah you know feminine coded motivation mm-hmm. yeah it's very it's very interesting because again like she kind of goes at it like on the surface level she's very much like like a guy's girl and that's the other fun thing about the Peter Katniss dynamic mm-hmm. is that you know Katniss is the female element of it but her although her motivations are again femininely coded her methodology and her presentation are very masculine. Yes. She's a provider. You know, she's direct. She doesn't, she's not good at lying. Right. Whereas PETA, who is, you know, the male part of the, of the ship, mm-hmm. is very good at manipulation and lying and presentation and mm-hmm. more feminine skills. Yes. And of course, he is the damsel compared to Katniss's, you know, big, big manly mountain man provider. <laughs> also, he's a fucking baker and he's really good at painting and all of those. Exactly. He's artsy. You know, he's he's a very accomplished young lady. Right. Because that was the thing. You know, why don't we briefly touch on the three main ships? Okay. So, you know, there's the Peter Katniss dynamic. Mm-hmm. So Hermione and Ron. So in the movies, you just think, girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. The only good thing he ever did was give knives to the house elves. Yeah. In the very last movie. Go bang crumb. It's fine. Exactly. <laughs> in the book, of course, you do get more of it. But mm-hmm. still, I don't know. For me, I definitely came away, even in the books, feeling like you two are worse for each other than you are good for each other. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. You stress each other out. You argue all the time. You don't appreciate each other's strengths. Yeah. There's elements of, of like what make Ron and Hermione a good ship, you know, throughout the books. But it's just like... I mean, it doesn't make for a very, like, a very satisfying conclusion because, like, you're getting too much of the burn and not enough of the slow burn in this relationship, yes. you know? So, like... Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I think that fundamentally, as people, they are compatible because, you know, Hermione is, like, she's a lot of brains. She's the Sherlock to Ron's Watson, basically. 
is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I was going to say something similar. Mm -hmm. I felt the same as you, where it's like there's hints of this dynamic throughout the books of Hermione is the untethered genius and Ron is the common sense. Yes. Right? That's the idea. Yeah. But uh, so much of that was lost because they're opposites. Opposites attract. Mm -hmm. She, I don't know. I felt there was too much arguing and not enough appreciation of the opposite. Yeah. You know? It's just a bummer compared yeah. to the Katniss Pita thing, yeah. which again is opposites attract, and it's this mix mix and match of feminine mm -hmm. skills and feminine coding and masculine coding, etc. Yeah. And I felt they were a better pair. The big detraction of the Katniss Pita thing is, of course, Katniss's total ambivalence for quite a while, and Pita's yeah. kind of un like unable to be understood, like dedication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you're 16 and she's not that into you, boy. Like, yeah. You know, maybe Peter, maybe Peter was just demisexual. Like, maybe that was just his deal is he was just, you know, he centered on it. her. And then he was just like, well, I mean, this is it for me. Um, Katniss Peta, I feel like was like the way that it was brought to a conclusion or the way that it kind of worked out was really well done because you were like, what would it take to make Katniss like, you know, feel for Peta? And I think the, that was really interesting um, reversal that they had in the last book. Yeah, it's a very satisfying trajectory for a relationship. I mean, it is very like, like it is very K drama levels of drama where like there's like amnesia, right? Involved. There's amnesia, there's brainwashing. Mm hmm. But at the same time, then it's just like I mean, I feel like that was a really cool way to get Katniss to meet him in the middle, and it's also a really cool message to like, or or a really cool lesson to take away from it is you know this idea that relationships take take work and they need to be done mm -hmm. from you know, both people, it's a reciprocal thing. So the Bella Edward thing. <laughs> oh, God. Just so, real quick. Yes, go ahead. It's cute in that it's very intense and it's romantic in the 18th century sense of the word. <laughs> or 19th century, I should say. Sturm und Drang, Sturm und Drang. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like a lot happening. Uh -huh. um, Again, it's very... Wuthering Heights is very telling. <laughs> Exactly. The, the fact that Wuthering Heights are the romantic ideal for this is very telling. They're meeting on totally different levels. And mm -hmm. the fun of a Beauty and the Beast, because Edward and Bella is a Beauty and the Beast story in structure, in yes. setup, right? Yes, yes. But the whole fun of Beauty and the Beast is when Beauty realizes the power she has over Beast and it becomes, you know, more of a power play situation. Yeah. She doesn't have his physical power, but she has power over him, right? Mm -hmm. And yes. Bella never gets there, Yeah. sadly. No. They must have no. the most vanilla sex. It's such a waste. No. Yeah, it's, 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 it's such a waste. So the Bella Edward thing, definitely the worst relationship, definitely the most romantic, but it is the only romance novel. So, of course, the relationship gets more airtime. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely the most titillating, the most fun, but also objectively the worst pairing the two of them mm -hmm. don't get along. They disagree on everything. He controls mm -hmm. any aspect of her life that he doesn't agree with, you know, mm -hmm. et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yep. So our favorite ship, I think our favorite ship is Katniss Pita, but yes. the question is, who is our favorite protagonist or, mm -hmm. you know, main female character? A, B, or C, Hermione, Bella, Katniss, on three? Okay. One, two, three. A, Hermione. Katniss. What'd you say, Whoops. Katniss? Yes, I said Katniss. See Katniss. Oh, we don't have to have the same decision. Tell me about it. Why Katniss? Well, um, I sort of came to this with the idea that Katniss, you know, again, she's not friends with other girls, which is the thing that to me is really important, you know, because I want, like, 
Backdoor test. A modern day, exactly. Backdoor testing as a modern day feminist. Then you know, then it's like I want women to be friends. They don't all have to be friends with each other, but I want them to be, at least, to make a nominal effort with friends. And it's just mm-hmm. like I mean, Katniss is prickly to everybody that she meets, but it's just like I mean, it's kind of an equal opportunity prickliness. And so I like she does let a lot of women into her life, which I really like. Um, I also like the I also like the fact that you know that she kind of is portrayed as like I think she has a really strong possibly the strongest character arc of the three in that you know she goes through these really traumatic experiences she has trauma and we kind of get to see the aftermath which is something that we don't get to see with Hermione I think she has as we just discussed she has the best ship that's a bit of her character arc and a bit of the romance arc is Katniss learning that you know Peta is like her relationship with Peta is this wonderful fruitful healthy thing you know, and it, and 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 that's what she needs in her life, as opposed to something where she's argue, like is very whirlwindy, but may, maybe not necessarily the best thing for the long term. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a really cool uh, takeaway from a series for for kids who are just getting into the whole romance and hormonal stage and stuff like that. That you know, you kind of that Katniss chooses the healthy relationship, and also like she chooses that, and also re- understands that it takes work. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's my opinion. <laughs> there you go. Good opinion. Mm-hmm. I, I have to pick Hermione just, she's iconic, the nostalgia. Mm-hmm. As far yeah. as, like, who is our favorite, and, you mm-hmm. know, my favorite is going to be Hermione. Yeah. As far as in the text, like, mm-hmm. what, she, what she did for me is, like, you know, it's, like, the first time mm-hmm. a lot of us got to see, like, you know, the sexless nerd who ends yeah. up, you know, getting a husband who she obviously feels attracted to all good mm-hmm. and she never has to change who she is about it yeah. and that's the other thing right just incomparable at, at the expense of like a character arc character arc mm-hmm. the kind that Katniss gets say yeah Hermione Granger was is just very relatable where Katniss yeah. is like a fictional character in a very cool universe interesting mm-hmm. idea wonderfully handled it's like Hermione always felt like you know like a friend basically mm-hmm. like a really fully realized character, really believable personality traits, really mm-hmm. not even appealing. Whereas, like, yeah. like if you knew Katniss in real life, you'd be like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. like, what's wrong with you? But Hermione, mm-hmm. you're like, yeah, I know that person. I am that person. I've been that person, you know? Yeah, that's very true. And I would also say, I mean, she, she doesn't, again, she doesn't have quite as dramatic of a character arc, but Hermione does learn how to bend. Mm-hmm. And she's super, she leans into her strengths and she learns to bend on yeah. where she needs to bend. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still going to stick with Katniss as my favorite. Oh, yeah, uh, totally. As you guys, uh, hypothetical audience members, will remember, there is no wrong answer. and Not at all. Not a single right answer either. Like, we, we, mm-hmm. we try to pick good choices for all of our multiple choices. Now that we've pronounced our verdicts, then, you know, then let's kind of close on a more lighthearted note. And so um, what's the meme of the week, Lindsay? I thought it would be appropriate, given that we discussed Harry Potter Mm -hmm. I think that we should sort our three female main characters into Hogwarts houses okay so Hermione I mean are you taking Hermione as a Gryffindor for granted are you saying missorted she should have gone into Ravenclaw what do you think I think uh and especially in light of today's discussion I think Hermione is right where she belongs she's a Gryffindor Mm -hmm. because she has principles and she stands by them and she, you know, and she likes to confront her problems head on. I agree. I think she's a great Gryffindor. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving chronologically, where do you put Bella Swan? Ooh, I would. E- I think I would put Bella Swan either in Slytherin or Hufflepuff. 
she definitely cares. Like she, she, she has a group of people that she cares about and mm-hmm. that's the people in whom, like in whose interest she acts. And so Slytherin or Hufflepuff may be leaning more on the side of Hufflepuff. I mean, cause Bella, she's not really, she's not super ambitious. Right. Right. Which is, which I would say like, like she's not super ambitious. And so I would say like, maybe that makes her less of a Slytherin than a Hufflepuff. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. And I think, I think Slytherin's a good take because mm-hmm. she wants to take care of her special people. Mm-hmm. Oh God. I think that's a Naruto reference, but I did it accidentally. So whatever. Okay. It happens. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've come around to the belief that a Slytherin can be well-defined as someone who, you know, does anything for those that they care about. Right. And I think, I think Bella Swan fits that definition. Okay. And for that reason, I also put Katniss as a Slytherin. So Katniss as a Slytherin and Bella Swan as a... Slytherin. Slytherin. Okay. Mm-hmm. But Katniss, oh. I could also mm-hmm. see Gryffindor is the thing. Oh, it's interesting because I... I, mm-hmm. I was leaning towards Katniss as a Hufflepuff. Oh, um, why? Again, because like she is more uh again because because of that that thing the reason that you put her in Slytherin, which is that she, you know she takes care of the people that are close to her, and those are the only people that she really really truly cares about. Maybe this is just because she's forced into having to you know work really hard to feed her family to like you know to become you know to be good at the Hunger Games like you know to kind of learn how to be like a personal like she does what she. Like, whatever she needs to do. Okay, I'm realizing that this makes her sound like a Slytherin. But also, <laughs> okay. But I also see Gryffindor in that, you know, mm-hmm. she she wants to do, she wants to take care of her family, but her methods are very blunt. That's true. Yeah, she's not a subtle creature. No. <laughs> Bless her. But you know yeah. what? I if My opinion is if Crab and Goyle can be Slytherins... Mm-hmm. And then be as, you know, as the blunt instruments that they are. I think Katniss Everdeen could be a Slytherin. Yeah, that's possible. Mm. All right. So we have one Gryffindor mm-hmm. uh, and two Slytherins, I guess. Yeah. You know, Bella Swan with an asterisk or a question mark. Mm-hmm. But nominally a Slytherin. Provisionally yeah. a Slytherin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to When in Doubt Pixie. If you thought our choices were bad or that our verdict was wrong, we would love to hear your opinions on our poll on Twitter at Pixie Podcast. And if you're curious to learn more about today's topic, you can find us on Tumblr at Pixie Podcast, where we'll have show notes and relevant posts that we've reblogged. Uh, today's episode was written by us, Sophie Lee and Lindsay Jones. The audio production was by Elisha Bonnet. And the music, the intro and outro music, is by David Hillowitz. Thank you again so much for listening. Bye. Bye.